Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. today we just do a very simple little scene that I hope you'll enjoy. And in our world, we can do anything that we want to do here. This administration is running like a fine-tuned machine. In your world, you create any illusion that you want. The leaks are absolutely real. The, the news is fake. Just let your imagination take you anywhere you want to go. And the wall is going to be a great wall. Don't worry about it. You don't always have to have a perfect vision in your mind. It's all fake news. It's all fake news. And in your world, you make all the decisions. I guess it was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. Create any illusion that you want here. Mm. I can do anything. Absolutely anything. Let's get crazy. You know what uranium is, right? It's a thing called nuclear weapons and other things, like lots of things are done with uranium, including some bad things. Let's have some more fun. I'm not ranting and raving. I love this. I'm having a good time doing it. Nuclear Holocaust would be like no other. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill, coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is Episode 5 of Intercepted. When the media lies to people, I will never, ever let them get away with it. I will do whatever I can that they don't get away with it. They have their own agenda, and their agenda is not your agenda. If you study the history of authoritarian regimes and fascist movements, you'll find that there are some core common strategies and tactics that unite all of them. Today, we're going to focus on one particular part of that, the dehumanization of classes of people and attacks on a free and independent press. Wrong. Later in the show, I'm going to be talking to the Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter for The New York Times, Jim Risen. He was targeted by the Obama Justice Department for seven years, seven, in retaliation for reporting that he did exposing the Bush and Cheney administration. And Risen faced imprisonment uh, for refusing to give up his sources. I'm going to talk to him about Trump's uh, declaration of war against a free press. But first, I want to focus on the hate and vitriol and dehumanization of transgender people in our society. Investigators say on Wednesday evening, they found the body of 41-year-old Mario, better known as Misha Caldwell, on Heindel Road in Canton. 
Family and friends tell us Caldwell was a transgender who went by the name Misha. This is something that we have seen continuous. I know for the last every four years, I have lost a transgender friend. Five-year-old Maya Young, who police say is a transgender woman, was found stabbed the multiple July times. July 20th murder of a transgender woman on... Taja De Jesus, a transgender woman who was stabbed to death at her baby The murder of a transgender woman. She's been identified as Brandy Bledsoe. Keisha a Jenkins, a transgender woman, was murdered in... Accused in the death of a transgender woman at a Montgomery hotel. A U.S. soldier is accused of killing a transgender woman in West Texas. The FBI is now involved in investigating the incident as a possible hate crime. Hate crimes against transgender people are on the rise, particularly trans women of color. Last year was the deadliest year on record for transgender people in the U.S. There were 27 murders most of them against trans women of color. This year, there have already been three reported homicides of trans women, all of them women of color. And these are just the cases that we know about that were reported. Last year, lawmakers in 34 states introduced more than 200 anti-LGBTQ bills. At least 50 of those targeted transgender people specifically. Now, part of the propaganda that's being pushed to defend the smearing and dehumanization of trans people centers around gender nonspecific bathrooms or whether trans women have the right to use the women's room. You can mark today as the day that Texas is drawing a line in the sand and saying no, the privacy and safety of Texans is our first priority, not political correctness. Any man at any time could enter a woman's bathroom simply by claiming to be a woman that day. Allow boys to use the girls' locker rooms and showers. Are we really talking about this? Does the desire to be politically correct outweigh our children's privacy and safety? Our legislators are really going to make it legal for men to use women's bathrooms to somehow help transgendered people. But that makes no sense. This idea that's being promoted is that it's going to put real women at risk. It's going to put children under the threat of being attacked. Now, this line of law and order, we need to protect the women and children, it's long been the rallying cry of those who seek to dehumanize others as part of their broader agenda of hate. Not so long ago in this country, black people were portrayed as non-humans and were lynched because they allegedly smiled or whistled at white women. Law and order. The Trump administration now, on an official level, is accelerating the campaign against LGBTQ people, and it's moving to roll back some of the Obama-era gains. The president has maintained for a long time uh, that this is a states' rights issue uh, and not one for the federal government, that this is not something that the federal government should be involved in. This is a states' rights issue. Matt. But it's, it's not just the White House or lawmakers around the country and their legal legislative war to strip or deny the rights of transgender people. It's also fueled by public mocking or shaming of trans people, a rejection of their humanity. But I think that women and, ch and, and girls should be protected from having people, who, men who are confused about their sexual identities in their bathrooms. That that's, person- That's not unreasonable. That person yeah. who was a, you know, an activist. All of this helps to normalize and even encourage the violence unleashed against them. To talk all about this, I'm joined by two people. Chase Strangio is a staff attorney with the ACLU's LGBT and AIDS Project. 
Chase is one of the leading lawyers spearheading the fight against these discriminatory bills nationwide and is also one of the lawyers representing the imprisoned whistleblower Chelsea Manning, who herself is a transgender woman. In addition to the legal battles that Chase is uh, helping to lead, it's also personal uh, for Chase. He is transgender. And I'm joined by Dante Stallworth, who played 10 years in the NFL as a wide receiver. He's been very outspoken on LGBTQ issues and also on U.S. foreign policy. All right. So Dante Stallworth, Chase Strangio, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Chase, let's begin with you. Give us an overview of the reality facing um, transgender communities, people in this country, uh, both from a legal uh, perspective, but also with regard to hate crimes. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen tremendous progress for the trans community over the last five, 10 years. But the reality is, I think in in sort of three key metrics, things are pretty dire for the community by and large, and particularly for for trans women of color. Um, On the the legal level, we still don't have explicit protections uh, at the federal level for trans people. So that means uh, no explicit protections in employment, housing, public accommodations. But then we've also seen um, an upsurge in anti-trans laws being proposed and in some cases passed, like House Bill 2 um, in North Carolina. Then you all... Explain what, what House Bill 2 is in North Carolina. Yeah, so House Bill 2 is the law that the North Carolina General Assembly, in their infinite wisdom, uh, passed through a special session uh, last March. Uh, it was designed to strip localities from expanding protections to include LGBT people in response to what Charlotte had done to to protect people. But it also went even further and implemented a discriminatory mandate with respect to transgender people's use of restroom and locker room facilities, essentially saying trans people can't use the bathroom or the locker room that matches who they are. You have to use one that corresponds to what's listed on your birth certificate. And then going back to the to the sort of t- two other metrics of conditions for trans people, one is the reality and the drivers of incarceration of the community, particularly trans women of color, which is, of course, related to the lack of legal protections. But you just see incredibly high rates of police profiling of trans women as sex workers. Um, you know, the data shows, you know, almost 50 percent of black trans women have been incarcerated at some point in their lives. Uh, the third metric then is um, the individually perpetrated violence. And, and we see um, with more visibility, with more trans people being out as trans, an incredibly high rate of violence towards the community, again, particularly targeted toward trans women of color. And, and the, you know, I was reading through some of the statistics, and the numbers are just spiking. Uh, they're just going through the roof of hate crimes being committed uh, against the, the broader LGBTQ uh, community, but specifically against transgender people. What, what factors are making that a reality? And, and also, I'm sure that there are a lot of totally unreported hate crimes um, against uh, people from that whole broad community, but specifically uh, the trans community. Yeah, I mean, so I do think we just have to start from the assumption that we're only hearing just of a fraction of of the numbers because people aren't reporting them, police aren't investigating them, and then the media, uh, in many circumstances, is misgendering people, so nobody ever knows that it's a trans person that's been um, murdered. 
you know, there's so, you know, there, you can look to so many factors as to why this is happening. But I think one of the key ones, especially with respect to the uptick, is that with the visibility and these new laws um, like HB2, the new rhetoric that is insistent upon calling trans women men about propagating lies about predatory behavior of, of trans people, it legitimizes individually perpetrated violence because what usually happens is someone um, ends up in some sort of romantic encounter with a trans person and, you know, finds out that they're trans and feels such rage, which is obviously being given to them in a feedback loop by society and then and then kills them. Um, and then the, or a stranger on the street is so angry that a trans person exists um, that you see and, you know, violence towards that individual. How many attacks against um, women or children have there been in bathrooms by uh, that are committed by uh, transgender people? You know, I, 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 I know of, of not one um, one incident. This isn't a rampant uh, occurrence around the country because there's some very prominent people that seem to think that this is, this is a plague, that transgender people are preying on our children and our women in bathrooms. Yeah, and you're, that, you're saying that that is not true? That is just, a, just patently untrue uh, lie, and it is a dangerous one, and it is one that we are hearing from, from people, um, but there's not you know, a shred of data to support it, and people are looking for that. They would love there to be lots of examples, and they look everywhere, um, but there are no examples, and so, um, so all that people are left with are, are lies um, and just the reality that at the, at the end of the day, uh, it's our job to show that what people are doing is urging that trans people not exist. That is their, that is really what they want because they there's no truth to what they're saying. And really what they're saying is that trans people are so gross and uncomfortable to me that I would rather um, come up with a reason why we should uh, justify the violence against them and justify the passage of laws that tells them that they're not fit to participate in public life. Right. And let's remember that uh, dehumanization is one of the core early uh, stages of authoritarian regimes, fascist movements, uh, justifying not just the official state-sanctioned violence against uh, whoever happens to be the least among that society and the views of the the state, uh, but also encouraging mob action over and over and over again through history. You you see this, and I want to bring in uh, Dante Stallworth, who is a, a NFL wide receiver. What brings you guys together, uh, in addition to probably some common views, is that Dante played for the Patriots. Chase is from the area up there and is a Patriots fan. I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to increase the amount of hate mail you get, Chase, so I'm going to have to I take will care. take it for the Pats. Anything <laughs> else, I'm, I'll be annoyed, but the Pats, I will take it. Is it okay if I call you a weirdo for being a Pats fan? That's fine. Okay, yeah. cool. Because those, yeah. uh, those people do truly baffle me. Tom Brady, great guy, great friend of mine, great, great champion, unbelievable winner. Dante, we're, we're now seeing an incredible uh, engagement from very high-profile uh, athletes. We had the recent uh, um, uh, confrontation of the CEO of Under Armour by Steph Curry, you know, this massive NBA star, Colin Kaepernick taking the knee, you know, which then sparked a lot of other uh, athletes to take uh, action. But now the NFL itself um, is, is basically th- uh, threatening the state of Texas that if it goes forward with the very uh, kinds of bills uh, or, or policies that Chase is laying out that they'll consider uh, taking away future events in the state of Texas. So your your analysis of what's going on right now uh, within the pro sports community, specific to this issue first, and then we'll talk about some other ones later. 
Well, initially, when when you look at, I, I think there has been an uptick in uh, a social consciousness of professional athletes and, and even collegiate athletes as well. Um, and I would say that started probably right around the time when uh, the things that were going on in Ferguson with the protests and players for the St. Louis Rams were conscious of this. Players around the league were conscious of this. And so when you have players are starting to awaken to what type of power they have off of the football field, then that is something that can become special, especially when it's used for a progressive movement. Um, and, and, and again, this was all for equality. And so moving on to the NFL, this is not something that's new. Um, back in 1990, the NFL threatened to take away a Super Bowl from the state of Arizona because they did not uh, recognize and acknowledge Martin Luther King's birthday as a state holiday. And they did take it away. And, uh, you know, in this in this country, money talks. And so they came to terms with the NFL. I don't want to say necessarily with the NFL, but they came to terms with. Uh, designating the Martin Luther King holiday as a state holiday. And three years later, lo and behold, you had a Super Bowl in Arizona. So the NFL understands the power that they have. And I think they've they've pretty much made it clear um, what what they could do. And you look at what happened with with uh, North Carolina last year. They lost uh, reportedly up to six hundred million dollars. So at the end of the day, you know, the state legislators and and the uh, the people of that state will have an issue when money's leaving that state. Chase, how, how does this all play into what you guys are doing at the ACLU on this issue? The fact that uh, you now have a very large, powerful cultural institution in the United States in the NFL taking this position on this issue. Are you going to make me say something nice about Goodell here? Because that is going to be really hard for me. Um, but no, I mean, I, I do think like- Well, they, Dante made the point. I mean, yeah, it's a, yeah, at, the, it's, at the end of the day, uh, yeah. these guys are ultra uber capitalists. But, right. but you know, it's also, yeah. there's a political value yeah. to it. There's a huge political value. And I think, of course, you know, we're pushing their hand by organizing movements that are making them, you know, because they know their fan base is that is it, are, are going to, um, you know, be, are going to make a difference in their bottom line. And so, you know, it, it, I don't want to give, I, I think the businesses and the institutions are important, but of course it's, it's related to all the mobiles, mobilizing we do right. on the ground. But of course, yeah, the experience in North Carolina was, was incredibly helpful and instructive, both in terms of the lost revenue and McCrory's lost election. And now the NFL, um, you know, the Super Bowl just happened. Um, and and now, you know, I do want to ding them a little bit. You know, they, they it wasn't like they pulled the Super Bowl that um, was there. I mean, that would have been really hard, but they could have done that. Um, and that would have really hurt hurt Texas badly. Um, and they didn't do that. But even now, just coming in and saying, you know, listen, we're going to play ball with you and and you're going to lose the Super Bowl if you, if you go down uh, future Super Bowls, if you go down this road. And so between the NCAA, the NBA and the NFL all wield, wielding their power in this way, you're not acting in the best interest of your state at all if you're willing to forego that amount of revenue for the purpose of telling people where to go um, to the bathroom because of a made up problem that that you're you're focusing on. Dante, you you're part of your uh, part of your political uh, development um, was around the issue of homophobia and, and uh, LGBTQ rights. Maybe talk about how how that how that issue in a very macho uh, you know manly culture of the NFL uh helped to kind of transform some of your thinking. Yeah, I think there's uh you know, Trump and those guys like to talk about it's it was just locker room talk yeah. when we're talking about grabbing pussy and all this stuff yeah. but but I'm sure you hear a lot of that in the actual locker room also. Well, yeah, there's uh you know it's it's not it's definitely not a a church going uh environment. I mean there there are instances where guys uh talk about things that they wouldn't talk about in public. But 
Um, me personally, you know, I, I grew up kind of in this environment uh, in, in California where uh, there like homophobia was rampant in my neighborhood. And it was never uh, an anger or a, a violent outburst uh, towards gays, but it was just a sense of like, I don't want to be around them. And so luckily for me, I, I, uh, I ended up moving to Miami after I was drafted. And there was uh, this restaurant that I frequent called Nobu in Miami. And so I was there all the time eating sushi, of course. And uh, there, uh, the, the waiters and the waitresses and the host, uh, the general managers, I, I knew everyone there because I was there literally, literally every day. And one of the uh, waiters was gay. And so I, I invited all of them because they were very friendly to me. So I invited all of them to come out with me one night. Um, and I remember the couple times that we went, um, he didn't come. And so I asked one of the young ladies who I was probably closest to at the restaurant, I asked her, why didn't he come to the, you know, to the spot with us? And she said, well, you know, because he's gay and the whole football macho thing. And my, and, and my heart just kind of sunk like, Am I giving that? Am I giving off that vibe? And she was like, "No, it's just you know, you come in here with the with the other big football players, and you come in here with the women, and blah blah blah." And for me, I I've I've never looked at myself as a bigot, but then I started to understand how I used to think because I didn't want to be around gays. And then I specifically, when he next time he passed me, I I like grabbed him and said, "Hey, we're all going out later. You should come." And uh, he said, well, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I may have a couple of things to do. And uh, so I kept pulling on his coattails and, and asking everyone else to have him come out. And he ended up coming out. And I spent, when he finally got there, we spent like 20, 30 minutes talking, just he and I. And I left there that night. I remember lying down in my bed thinking what uh, what a bigot I had been. Um, I was like, this dude is super cool. He's not trying to talk to me and get my phone number and holler at me like the myths you've talked yeah. about. And I realized how ignorant I was and I felt so, so bad. And over time, I just realized that I can't just, you know, I can't leave it there. I, I need to start becoming vocal about this because still a lot of my teammates and friends and even family members were still kind of in that mindset that I had been in. There are several uh, players on the uh, New England Patriots uh, that have stated publicly that they will not go to the White House to uh, meet with uh, Donald Trump. And you you were invited on, uh, on Bill O'Reilly and on CNN uh, to talk about this issue. And there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, people like Colin Kaepernick, you know, who's of course San Francisco 49ers, uh, they spawn should stay out. Of Satan. They, they, the spawn yeah, of they Satan. they should stay out of politics, and that Martellius Bennett and these other people, you know, they should they they basically all they should be doing for us is is uh, you know performing in the the bread and circus, and and but you've pushed back against that quite strongly. What, what's your what's your argument for why what they're doing is right? I mean, I think what they're doing is right is uh, I'm a big fan of history. And so you can go to recent history in 2003, 2004, when Steve Nash wore this shirt in pregame that said no war, uh, shoot for peace and was ridiculed for that. And uh, even Skip Bayless, who was I believe was writing for the San Jose Mercury at the time, uh, just totally ridiculed him and. And said, how could you have the audacity to speak your political opinions? Um, you should be more worried about playing in the game. Uh, and these people don't understand that there are some things more. Even though this is 
a part of our life. This is our occupation, what we do for a living and what we love to do and have dreamt of doing since we were children. But there are some things that are more important than sports. And uh, you look at what Carlos Delgado did in 2004. He uh, did not uh, stand for God Bless America. And same thing, he was ridiculed for that. His reasoning for not standing was um, he, he acknowledged, obviously, the the horrors of 9-11 and what happened um, to the American people um, in New York City and in, at the Pentagon and, and with the crash in Pennsylvania. But he also acknowledged uh, the lives of uh, innocent Iraqis and, Af- and Afghanis who were caught in this war on terror who had nothing to do with any terrorism. And he was ridiculed for that. I, I don't understand how you can ridicule somebody for trying to bring light to an issue of civilians uh, being murdered that had nothing to do with with the war. Um, well, and you, I mean, and, and you and I have talked about this before. You you go back to the '68 Olympics yep. uh, with uh, John Carlos and and Tommy Smith holding up the black leather fist uh, at, at a time when civil rights leaders were being assassinated, right. uh, where open uh, war was being waged against black people and where rights were being um, denied. And the U.S. was in Vietnam and Muhammad Ali refusing to enter the U.S. Uh, military, a case that also went all the way to the uh, Supreme Court um, over his draft resistance. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or uh, some darker people or uh, some poor hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They never put no dogs on me. They never robbed me of my nationality. Rape and kill my mother and father. Well, I'm gonna go shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children, women. How can I shoot them poor people? I would just take me to jail. A lot of stories of resistance and using your public platform to speak out. I find it interesting that these attacks come from people who also are very passionate supporters of Donald Trump, who is a reality TV personality. Yeah. That has become president. That seems to be what people are expecting now. And and I don't when when you when you talk about these things, there's like you just mentioned, there's so much historical precedent that is set with all of this. And it's when I look at it, it's like, well, you look at Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the uh, L.A. Times said it was a Nazi like salute. Um, you look at again, go back to Steve Nash, Carlos Delgado. Uh, a lot of these players, even Jackie Robinson, I mean, you can you can you can look at history. It's so many different uh, aspects and, and so many different sports. But at the end of the day, and of course, the great Muhammad Ali. But at the end of the day, all of these players have been vindicated for standing up for human rights, for standing up for equality and justice and peace and truth. You know, my biggest thing is be careful when you criticize these players, because usually they turn out on the right side of history and not the people who are casting their aspersions on them. Chase, when, when ordinary people say, you know, what can I do uh, about a whole slew of issues? I'm curious what you tell people on on this issue that you're working on uh, right now um, with all of these fights for uh, transgender people to be uh, given the exact same rights as people of any of other genders. Uh, when, when you're in that struggle, what, what would you say to ordinary people beyond just support the ACLU and, and give us some money? Um, well, I mean, I think first is, is exactly sort of what, what Dante described about his own process with, with sort of internalized homophobia. I mean, we all have to recognize that 
whether it's about communities we're a part of or particularly when it's communities we're not a part of, that we have work to do to recognize our own biases and, and discomforts and and sort of really work actively to undo those. And part of that is is working within ourselves and part of that is taking it upon ourselves to educate and engage with others. And that's really how we, we move through history, how we make progress. Um, you can win all the cases in the world, but if you're not sort of fundamentally mobilizing power in the communities and educating people, you're not going to be successful. Um, um, and I think use the platforms that you have. I mean, if you're if you're someone with like a professional athlete with an incredible platform, it, it is that much more powerful to take that platform. You know, this week, uh, Laverne Cox took her moment at the Grammys uh, to talk about our client. And that was the single most effective piece of public education for our case that we had. And it took her, you know, less than one, less than 60 seconds. Everyone, please Google Gavin Grimm. He's going to the Supreme Court in March. Hashtag Stand with Gavin. It was transformative. It cha- it could change the outcome of something. And so I think, obviously, if you have a huge platform, you have a huge, um, I think, amount of responsibility and power. If you have a small platform, then you have, um, you know, you still have a responsibility to engage and to try to, to work to sort of upset these power structures. And I think just quickly going back to the professional athletes, I do, I do think what it's important to note is that, you know, in this country, which is really founded on anti-blackness in almost every way, um, we we consume um, black athletes in a particular way. And when they speak out, um, white people in particular um, are like, well, you're not playing your role because we're OK with you as long as we can control your body in a particular way. Um, and so I think when you have athletes sort of standing up to that, what you're seeing in the people who are criticizing them is their discomfort with their, the, the order that we've set up, which is precisely precisely to oppress uh, and dehumanize black people and many other groups, anti-blackness, I think, being one of the most the most important thing to really centralize and think about. But but all of the work that we have to do is about upsetting those power structures and recognizing that the people who criticize us when we're doing that are just the, the people who need those power structures because they're benefiting from them. Perfectly said. <laughs> I mean, that that was that was right on. And you get it a lot. Um, as a professional athlete, you'll hear guys say it all the time. Uh, well, they're telling you to stick to stick to sports, whatever your respective sport is. And that's you, well said. I, I have nothing to add. That was perfect. Dante Stallworth, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Chase Strangio, thank you as well for being on Intercepted. Thanks so much. Dante Stallworth played 10 years in the NFL as a wide receiver. And Chase Strangio is a staff attorney with the ACLU's LGBT and AIDS Project. So don't bump me. Don't bump me. Blow me from the mountains into the sea. Blow me from the side of the mountain. Blow my head off. Explode my crystal guns. Lay my purple on the ground That is the musical artist Anani performing her song, Drone Bomb Me. Coming up, we're going to talk about a company with close ties to the Trump administration that helped the NSA spy on the world. Stay with us.
All right, we're back with Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. Well, Donald Trump is now in control of the most powerful surveillance system the world has ever known. And this whole apparatus, the architecture of spying and surveillance uh, that's run by the NSA, the CIA, the DIA, and all of the other alphabet soup agencies, for decades, that whole system has been fueled by the private sector, private spy companies, private defense contractors. And that's been true under both Democrats and Republicans. It was true under Barack Obama. But Trump is perhaps the most militant, radical free marketer, so-called free marketer, to ever control the presidency. And early on in his administration, if you remember, Donald Trump had that meeting with all of these uh, heads of tech companies, and some of them looked like they had been dragged in there, and some of them clearly were excited to be there. I'm here to help you folks do well. Well, that was all arranged by uh, Trump's good friend, Peter Thiel, the billionaire Silicon Valley uh, investor. This week, The Intercept has a major expose on one of Peter Thiel's companies, Palantir Technologies. And the expose, which is written by my colleague Sam Biddle, reveals new details about how Palantir helped the NSA expand its global spying operations uh, and also the role of the CIA in creating Peter Thiel's company, Palantir. The article is called Peter Thiel's Palantir Helped the NSA Spy on the Whole World. Its author, Sam Biddle, joins me now. Sam, welcome to Intercepted. What is Palantir Technologies? It's hard to describe because it is so open-ended by design, but what it's intended to do is take vastly different kinds of data. So videos, emails, spreadsheets, PowerPoints, basically any kind of computerized information from all different sources, you import it into one centralized database that can then be uh, visualized, graphed, charted in a lot of really intuitive uh, and useful ways. Um, what, what, what kind of data? Sure. So uh, there And are, whose data? Great question. There are two main Palantir products. One is called Palantir Gotham and Palantir Metropolis. Yes, this is a very nerdy company. Is there also Palantir Batwoman (laughs) and uh, Palantir Joker? (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Uh, uh, Although the the company's name is a Lord of the Rings reference. He asked me my name. I didn't answer. He asked me. What did you tell him about Frodo and the ring? So uh, Palantir Gotham is aimed at government, so law enforcement, you know, FEMA, Homeland Security, and intelligence community, of course. So that's a lot of you know, geographic uh, uh, data. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Again, GPS coordinates, photos, videos, emails. Um, Whose emails? Anyone's emails. It could literally be any data source. You know, you have to bring your own data. It, this, this isn't software that's used to procure data. But let's say, you know, let's say the FBI has subpoenaed uh, an email provider and they get, you know, a bulk uh, dump of, of uh, text. Um, and then they also have phone call records, and then they also have uh, GPS data from someone's phone. This stuff is hard to visualize together because there's, you know, one's a spreadsheet, one's text, et cetera. Uh, but with Palantir, you can basically put it all in one map. Uh, I mean, sometimes literally on Google Earth, uh, which it connects to. So it makes it relatively easy to uh, analyze the kind of data that, you know, the CIA or the FBI or Homeland Security would be dealing with um, in, in, the, in the course of an investigation. Now, you've, you've been going through the archive of material provided by the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, and you've been looking in there at the materials on Palantir. What, what did you find in your investigation? It's been known and, and widely reported that Palantir was partially funded by Incutel, which is the CIA's, uh, believe it or not, their venture capital arm. They, they fund startups uh, regularly. Palantir is one of them. But uh, we have documents that uh, describe uh, and state that Palantir was actually co-developed with help from the U.S. intelligence community, from, from the CIA, that it wasn't just their cash that was paying Palantir's engineers, but actual uh, U.S. intelligence analysts and, and you know, employees working in tandem with Palantir employees. And what's um, the problem with that? I think that any time uh, the private sector and the most capable spies on the planet are making a product in secret, uh, the uses of which are also secret, I think that should be unsettling to most people. I mean, again, every part of this is hidden and secret. So we don't know exactly what they uh, built into it or what role they had or how much oversight they had. Um, but, you know, it's, it's generally not great when our country's police and spies are working with mass market startups. Now, uh, one of the other things that you're revealing, um, and I understand for the uh, first time, is confirmation of the extent of Palantir's integration uh, with the NSA and its Five Eyes Partners X-Keyscore program, which, of course, was the one of the first massive exposés uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras did with Edward Snowden that revealed this massive collection of data, private communications, et cetera, not just foreign adversaries, but also American citizens. So what, what did you learn about Palantir's role in that? One of the problems with X-Keyscore is that it's sort of too good at vacuuming up the world's you know, metadata and, and, and communications records. I mean, th they deal with tens of billions of individual records, which you know, no human can comprehend, you know, uh, uh, and, and even machines would struggle to comprehend. Palantir's role has been to say, okay, look, you feed the raw data from X-Keyscore into an application we've created, and it will then be made relatively intelligible to your analysts. So the problem of, of having too much spy data, too much private collection, we can fix or at least mitigate. I like to sort of think of it as um, the difference between uh, in olden times when you would have, uh, you know, your Hotmail or like an, you know, Yahoo email inbox with just everything listed in chronological order with no real organization. Big deal about Gmail is it put it in these convenient threads and it made it really easy to search. Um, and it was the same data but presented in a very, uh, you know, a highly useful, intuitive way. So that's sort of what Palantir has provided uh, the NSA and its partner 
spy agencies. Let, let's say that there that uh, these agencies uh, actually are following the laws and and not lying under oath to the Senate. Is there a problem with the capabilities that Palantir is providing to intelligence agencies? If an agency is in a position where it has literally so much data that it can't even make sense of how much data it has, it's probably collecting too much data, right? Like it, it's at odds with the idea of, look, we carefully target our surveillance uh, tools. We only go after bad guys. You know, it's hard to reconcile that claim with the fact of we have tens of billions of records. There aren't tens of billions of terrorists. You know, there aren't. There, there's only. There's only. There are only so many bad people. Bad people. However, you want to qualify that in the world, right? So, they clearly have an overabundance problem. And Palantir is stepping in, and saying, "Look, more or less, we can fix that problem. It's it's cool that you're collecting a shitload of of Skype." Facebook message, you know, Twitter, whatever, every possible form of electronic communication, we're going to help you with that problem, which is to make all that useful. Previously, you were encumbered by the fact that you had too much to use. Now you can use it all. Um, You know, which again, sure, that's a position they could take. But uh, it's hard to take that position and then also say, we believe very strongly in the protection of civil liberties, and personal privacy. Those are mutually exclusive positions. Is Does Palantir and, and do Palantir contractors, employees, et cetera, are they retaining this data that they're processing and, and breaking down for these intelligence agencies? All we know is, and we were actually able to look at um, some Palantir source code, uh, which contains an end user license agreement, more or less. So, you know, the terms of use. Here's what you have to agree to if you want to use this this software. And it says, you know, this Palantir software is not to be used for any activity that could possibly violate anyone's privacy or rights <laughs> of any kind. And this is like literally software that was handed over to uh, GCHQ, the UK's uh, equivalent of the NSA, for uh, use with uh, XKeyscore, the NSA's massive collection tool. So it's clear that they don't give a shit about their own uh, legal standards or, 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 you know, contractual obligations for their clients. So that is worrying. But, uh, you know, I, I think, and this is something that you've, of, of course, reported on a lot about, is is the use of uh, contractors in the military, the overlap of the private sector and soldiers and everything that, that can go wrong with that. Palantir routinely uses what they call forward deployed engineers or FDEs, um, where they will send their employees, uh, their engineers to client's offices and they will just work out of their offices so that the client has in-house representatives from the company working alongside them. And we have documents showing that uh, Palantir employees were available to help train GCHQ spies. So so they're like – so Peter Thiel is like, here's our forward deployed engineer, Bilbo Baggins. Right. <laughs> And he yes. is going to walk you through on how to use our incredibly invasive uh, tool. Right. So, you know, I, look, uh, even if Palantir is not collecting or storing this Intel data, they're at the very least, they're helping uh, in the collection of it, right, and providing hands-on training for the people who are doing the spying. So you, know, you have to ask yourself, should software engineers from Palo Alto – be working alongside uh, the you know the most powerful and capable spies in the world, right? And you know, one of my big picture concern about uh, the, the the sort of collect it all mentality 
is that when they're vacuuming up everything and they're saying, oh, but we're not going to, we're not going to access that. We're not going to look at this, at that, but they do repeatedly. They use it for parallel construction. Our entire lives now, our medical records, our emails, our texts, our deepest secrets are being held not only on the servers of the companies that, that provide us with these tools, but also in the hands of multiple intelligence agencies. And, you know, most people in their life are not going to end up in the crosshairs of the NSA or the CIA or Chinese intelligence or the Kremlin. Um, but if you do, it's essentially a time machine to go back and 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 do a very invasive proctological exam, basically, of your entire life. Right. And, and you know, and, and one thing that you could normally take solace in is, look, I'm a needle in a global Haystack, you know, even you know, even if they tried to find me, it would be hard because I'm buried in everyone, you know, alongside everyone else. But that's exactly what Palantir is trying to correct: is say, look, like there aren't, there's no more haystack. It's all needles. All right, Sam, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Sam Biddle is a reporter for the Intercept. You can read his article on Palantir at theintercept.com. Well, there's a whole lot of intrigue around the questions of Donald Trump's relationship with Russia and the calls that his former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, had with Russia's ambassador to the United States that were reportedly picked up by U.S. spy agencies. But according to a document provided by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, the NSA isn't just concerned about what may or may not be said on the phone by Americans in sensitive positions talking to Russians. At least one NSA operative is also concerned that U.S. spies going out for an innocent dinner may prove to be an OPSEC, or operational security, nightmare. April 7, 2004. Highest possible classification is top secret. OPSEC. Why should you care? From Redacted. Most of us have taken the mandatory OPSEC training for this year, and many people are wondering, why should I care? Or, what does this have to do with me? If you think OPSEC doesn't apply to you, consider the following scenario. You're at a luncheon at a local restaurant to bid farewell to Sue, a co-worker who is moving on to a new office. There are 15 people there, all agency employees from your immediate team, plus Sue's spouse, an agency employee who works in another area. Your boss gets up and starts talking about the great contribution Sue has made to your efforts against international crime and the wonderful working relationship she's had with our sister agencies inside the Beltway. Such a valuable member of our team. He goes on to mention that she'll make a great branch chief and the people working Russia are lucky to get her. We're all going to miss you greatly. Sue gets up to thank specific individuals present who have helped her succeed. Sound familiar? Then you've witnessed, or perhaps participated in, a demonstration of poor OPSEC. But who cares? Did anybody do any harm here? After all, we know what is classified, and we would never divulge that in public, right? But if you ever stop to consider what your unclassified public discussions might be giving away, take the scenario, for instance. 
This is a scene that's played out monthly in the Fort Meade area. It's entirely possible that nothing said during the speeches was classified, and everyone who attended works here, so what's the big deal? To understand the answer, you need to think like the adversary. That's really what OPSEC is all about. What information do our adversaries care about? And what are we giving away every day? Let's look at the scenario from an adversary perspective. Pretend you're the bad guy sitting at the next table in the restaurant where the luncheon is being held. What did you learn? Take a minute to think about what information you believe was shared and then compare that to the list below. 1. The names and faces of team members, picked up either because of introductions to Sue's husband or just in casual conversation. 2. The fact that this team works on international crime issues. This shows not only that the NSA is interested in this issue, it also shows the adversary who specifically knows about this target. 3. The most senior people on the team have been identified, specifically the boss who praised Sue's efforts. It's also highly likely that the general hierarchy of the team can be determined just by watching social interaction. 4. The links between NSA and other agencies working crime issues. 5. The skills necessary to work both the international crime and Russian targets, and any parallels between them. There are potentially many more correlations that can be drawn from this scenario. But I think you get the point. So what can we do to reduce this risk? There are some simple adjustments we can make that can help a great deal. No, I'm not going to suggest discontinuing luncheons. But requesting a private room or for tables to be set up away from other customers for privacy purposes is a relatively easy way to make it much more difficult for an adversary to gather information unobtrusively. I hope that this has shown you that OPSEC does, in fact, apply to everyone. The SID OPSEC program managers are ready to assist you in determining how OPSEC relates to your particular mission area and day-to-day -day work activities. For more information, contact Redacted or Redacted on Redacted. That was actor Wallace Shawn performing a document from the NSA's internal newsletter, SID Today. And by the way, Wally has a great play that's currently being performed in New York City. It's called Evening at the Talk House. If you're in town, check it out. Look, I want to see an honest press. When I started off today by saying that 
it's so important to the public to get an honest press. The press, the public doesn't believe you people anymore. Now, maybe I had something to do with that. I don't know. In Donald Trump's constant denunciation of the news media, he almost never forgets to mention what he calls the failing New York Times. Now, I've had my own views on that paper's failings over the years, including some of its coverage of the lead up to the Iraq war that helped push the false narrative that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. But that paper also employs a number of really good journalists, including one of the best journalists uh, reporting on the realities of the post 9-11 era. And I'm, I'm talking about investigative reporter James Risen. He was the first reporter to expose warrantless wiretapping. No, not Edward Snowden revelations, warrantless wiretapping, wiretapping as it was happening during the Bush and Cheney administration. And James Risen had to fight his own editors to publish that story. Risen has broken numerous stories on private war contractors, torture, the CIA, and special operations forces. And for seven years, he fought a battle against the Justice Department, the Obama Justice Department, which tried to force him to give up his sources. James Risen never budged, even under the threat of imprisonment. Well, eventually, the Justice Department dropped its pursuit of Risen, but the precedent set in that case is going to have far-reaching implications particularly in light of Trump's posturing about leakers and journalism in general. Jim, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. You know, I think a lot of people are making a mistake by just uh, covering Trump as though he's this buffoon and, oh my God, what's the next thing he's he's going to say? Because I, I, I do think there are, you know, not just whiffs, but kind of a, a growing stench of authoritarian, almost fascistic policies that seem to be being implemented via Twitter, the public statements, these executive orders. So I, th- I mean, I see something quite demonic in the attack on the news media, because I don't think it's really just an attack on news organizations or journalism. It is, it's an attempt to sort of say nothing is true unless it comes from the dear leader. Right, right. That's the scary part of it. And I think there are, he seems to have a base of support for that in the United States. And I think that's one of the un, uh, relatively uncovered aspects of the campaign was the degree to which people were voting for an authoritarian candidate consciously. I don't think that's just a side side plot. I think there was a significant portion of the American people who want authoritarianism. And uh, I think Trump is... He's definitely got a strong strain of authoritarianism. And I think one of his, one of the problems we have is that the Republican Party refuses to recognize that. And so you've got all these relatively normal Republicans trying to rein in Trump in various ways without acknowledging what he really is. Right. And it's it's like um, journalist Alan Nairn said recently that um, he kicked the oligarchs and the neocons and, and traditional Republicans. He dragged them uh, unwillingly into, in, into power in this election. The problem is you don't really know from day to day uh, what Trump is or going to do. I mean, I think uh, you're right. He's authoritarian. At the other side, he's kind of completely unhinged on certain things. And so you never know quite where he's going. In some ways, that's comforting. And I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be in the government who was saying, who he worked overseas, and he was saying, you know, I, I've seen author, I've seen uh, dictators up close. And the one thing about dictators 
who are successful is that they are disciplined. He said, the one thing that gives me comfort about Trump is that he seems completely undisciplined, which is small comfort, actually. But <laughs> what, um, you know, you, you wrote this very provocative, uh, well, I actually didn't find it provocative because I follow your work and I know what happened to you under both the Bush and Obama administrations. But the title of it was, If Donald Trump Targets Journalists, Thank Obama. The Obama administration was by far... Uh, the most anti-press administration we've had since at least uh, Nixon. They, as you know, they uh, conducted more leak investigations and did more leak prosecutions, more than all previous administrations combined. And they targeted journalists in ways that no other administration ever has. And they went, you know, in my case, they uh, went after me for seven years. They had a grand jury trying to get me to, they subpoenaed me. And then a, during a trial, they tried to subpoena me to testify and to reveal my sources. When the trial judge in my case quashed subpoenas against me, the, uh, ju- the Justice Department under Obama appealed that to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Fourth Circuit reversed the lower court's decision and ordered that I testify, and in that uh, order, agreed with the Obama administration's position in the case, which was, there is no such thing as a reporter's privilege in a criminal case. We appealed that to the Supreme Court because it's such a devastating blow to press freedom in the United States. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court refused to take the case. And so as a result, The biggest legacy of the Obama administration on press freedom right now is the Fourth Circuit decision, which states that there is no such thing as a reporter's privilege in the Fourth Circuit. And the Fourth Circuit covers Virginia and Maryland, which are home to the CIA, the Pentagon, and the National Security Agency. And so what that means is legally... If there is a leak investigation involving the CIA, the Pentagon, the NSA, or any of the major security agencies in the United States, which is where most leak investigations occur, there will be no legal protections for any reporter because of the ruling in my case, which I think was an outrageous decision by the Obama administration to file a brief. They said flat out, there is no such thing as a reporter's privilege in a criminal case. So what does that mean then uh, for, you know, Trump, Trump, of course, celebrated the publication of the uh, DNC emails and John Podesta's emails and, um, you know, was constantly tweeting in praise of WikiLeaks. And then that caused this chain reaction where people like Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter became, you know, major backers of Julian Assange. And now Trump is uh, essentially saying, I'm going to go to war against the people leaking uh, information about my administration Uh, and from within the intelligence community. So what are the consequences of your case and the Obama legacy on press freedom now in in this moment we're in with Trump saying, basically, I'm going to go after all leakers? Yeah, it makes what Obama did makes, makes it much easier for Trump to do what he wants on leaks. They have created an environment and have left it for Trump that makes it uh, very easy to subpoena a reporter, and then force him to testify and uh, 
the alternative, the only alternative right now is for a reporter to go to jail to protect their sources. Look, the hypocrisy on leaks is a long tradition in Washington. Most leaks, as you know, come from official sources. You know, I would say 80 to 90% of leaks in, that you read about in the press every day are something that the government itself wants out. It's the, you know, 10 to 20% of leaks that are inconvenient for the powers that be that always get the powers, you know, the, whoever's president or whoever they get upset about. And so it's all depends on whose ox is getting gored, uh, by the leaks. And that, that's always been true. When uh, the Democrats are in power, they hate leaks. When the Republicans are in power, they hate leaks. I think Trump has just taken that language to, to new heights. Do you think there really is a conflict between Trump and the intelligence agencies? It, you know, do you think that the NSA or the CIA are, are, are indeed withholding information uh, from Trump because of concern about his erratic behavior and potential for him to be blackmailed or compromised? Well, I know there's been some reporting on that. I find it a little bit hard to believe uh, because of what my what I know about the way those uh, agencies work. I think that there is a they tend to be filled by people who are who want to be part of a large organization. They're not filled by rebels. It's, uh, these are people who tend to, uh, be conservative culturally and, uh, maybe not politically so much, but they are, uh, they're not the kind of, you know, there's not very many whistleblowers in the intelligence community. You know, Edward Snowden is a, is an outlier. Right. What about the, the, clearly very influential role that Steve Bannon, the former head of the Breitbart Empire, and Stephen Miller are playing, particularly when it comes to national security issues and the National Security Council. You know, you've got these these various centers of gravity that appear to be forming in the Trump circle. You know, you've got the adults or the seeming, seeming adults like uh, Mattis or, Trump, or Pence, I mean, uh, you know, and then McCain playing this role from the outside, kind of this hazy role. And then you've got kind of the insurgents within the Trump circle, Bannon and Jared Kushner. It seems to me, from what little I know, uh, that Kushner is the kind of the key bridge between the the more moderate forces and the and the insurgents and the he seems to have the ear of the pre of the president, and I wonder whether all of this won't boil down to a fight for control over Jared Kushner's brain. You know, where both sides realize that they have to get control of the flow of information between him and uh, Trump, and um, I think that that may be where how this pans out is Trump seems to have most of his trust is lies with his family. And so I, it's kind of like a, an old European court where you have to decide, okay, which relative do I need to impress and to get to the king? Maybe that's what the fight will be about uh, controlling the flow, the access to and flow of information between Kushner and Trump. 
Did your ordeal with uh, under the Bush and Obama administrations and the and the sort of the war against you and and I I, th- I think at times it seemed like they were trying to punish you uh, for the reporting that you had done. Yeah, I think that I, I I think they were. You know, I think frankly, I've always thought that the the reason they came after me on the story they came after me was on my CIA and Iran story that was in state of war. I think it was because of the NSA stories we did for the New York Times, which they, I think they made a calculated decision. We're not going to go after the New York Times, but we can isolate Ryzen and go after him. The whole way in which leak investigations is done and it has been done is uh, arbitrary and uh, makes no legal, there's no real legal rationale you can make other than, you know, the use of political power. The, you know, the Obama and Bush administrations just did it a little more subtly than Trump seems to be starting to do. Did the battle that you uh, were forced to fight by this targeting of, of you and some of your alleged sources, has it changed the way you report or the way that you deal with sources? Yeah. You know, it uh, made it difficult to talk to some people. Some people didn't want to talk to me because it made them nervous. Other people, I think... The fact that I was fighting and refusing to cooperate made other people want to talk to me. So it was kind of a mixed bag, but it was exhausting. And it, and it kind of uh, made me very wary about, uh, you know, about the way I, I operated. I try to, you know, I, everyone talks about encryption today and how, you know, reporters have to use encryption. I think, I think the personal meeting, face-to-face meeting is still the best. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, th- I really do think that, you know, that the reality is that journalists now are being forced to act like spies. And of course, we're not spies. Yeah. And, um, right. And, right. and, and right. it's not, it's not just for our, the, the integrity of our own reporting process. It's because of the humongous stakes for somebody slapped with an espionage charge. You kind of feel like you're living in a police state. You know, it's not the way you should have to work as a reporter in a democracy. Right. I mean, it's like, let's meet um, Deep Throat in the in the car garage. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community, FBI, CIA, justice. It's incredible. But it is almost like you have to become a, a, a Luddite with, um, you know, counter espionage or counter surveillance skills just to do your job as a reporter. You know, I've got a lot of funny stories about the way I've had to meet sources, uh, I had one source who uh, demanded that we meet in a a sauna <laughs> where we were both naked, so because he wanted to make sure he wasn't being uh, recorded and that there were no listening devices. And so we met in like a it was like a a, a bath a Russian bath type place, and uh, that was probably the weirdest I've had to do. And I couldn't take uh, my notebook in there because it was all steamy. So I just had to remember the best I could what he said. Jim, I will never be able to erase what you just told me from my mind. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of too much information probably. <laughs> Although that could have been an interesting author photo for your book. <laughs> uh, what, what, why, uh, what, what, what gets you up in the morning and keeps you going as a reporter, given that you're, you know, that, as you said, there are elements of feeling like you, you're in a police state just doing your job. What keeps you going? Good question. 
Actually, I have to say, I have to admit that Trump's election made me question uh, made me question whether people really want to hear about the abuses of the government that you know you and I and other people have been reporting on, particularly since 9/11, because the American people just voted to basically double down on those things. And so I've had to rethink, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? And I, th and I guess the answer is we just, you know, have to keep trying to tell the truth. Jim, thanks. Thanks a lot for, uh, for talking with me. Thanks. James Risen is an investigative reporter for The New York Times. He is the author of several best-selling books, including State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. That does it for this week's show, and I have a small favor to ask of you, our listeners. Please tell your friends about the show. Hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you do such things. And if you feel so inclined, please head over to iTunes and give our show a rating. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Lital Malad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.